0: Welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And
1: I'm Ari Deckard.
0: And this is our podcast where I, Ari's wife, interview him about his three kidney transplants and his experiences with Alport syndrome and the various other medical stories that have come up related to those things. Yeah. So last week, we talked about kind of life after your transplant failed. So you dropped out of college and you had to go through transplant failure. You had to start doing dialysis. Mm Mm-hmm workout, employment, and volunteer work that you were doing during that time. Right. And then in the podcast before that, we had also talked about how, because of the medication issues that had happened, you had been blacklisted for a year. You could not start the process of trying to get an organ transplant until a year was up. Mm -hmm. And so I guess to start us off this week, I wanted to ask, what happens after that year passes by? Once the clock has run out, how do you get started again?
1: Well, then they begin all of the steps that need to happen to lead to me eventually having a transplant. And so that means starting the process of listing me on the official transplant list, the UNOS list. Um, That meant taking some blood just to make sure that all the stuff that they probably already knew about me and my genetics and my everything else was the same, but in case anything had changed, because it can... And then also because they want to have blood on hand always to do what's called a cross match test where you take, um, it's part of all transplant things. You take a little bit of the recipient's blood and a little bit of the donor's blood and you mix them up and look at them in a microscope. And if the recipient's blood is attacking the donor's blood, then you say, Hey, this is a bad idea. This is um, not going to work. And you know, they've already done all that genetic testing and, matched for all the markers that they know how to match and look at everything they can look at. But at a certain point, there's a little bit of, maybe there's something we don't know or that we can't find. And so the cross matches that that ultimate test. Um, so they got to have your blood on hand in case a kidney comes in.
0: Yeah, and here's another good time for me to put in that reminder. <laughs> yeah. that this is a personal story about your experience as a patient. It's not a medical podcast, and no. we're not offering medical or scientific expertise beyond the autobiographical component here. Yeah,
1: absolutely not. And so then the other thing is that at least at OHSU, what they do is they say, okay, now you're going to take classes about what being a transplant recipient means. Um, I'd already taken these classes, but I got to take the new version just to refresh me. Um, And, you know, we just said, like, this is not a scientific or medical podcast in that way. And there is a little bit of time where they explain some of the really basic genetics, but it's explained on a level that's meant to be understood more as a sort of reassurance level. Like we test for the following factors. It's more like a toothpaste ad kind of where, you know, the following five doctors say this is okay. Oh, doctors say it's okay. Well, that's nice. I trust that. Um, it's not intended to be something that's a science class, or that you Right,
0: need to- you don't need to be able to install the kidney yourself and do all the matching. You need to know <laughs> yeah. what you need to do as a patient.
1: Yeah, it's it's much much more focused on that. And um, there was a there was related to that. There was sort of this strange thing that happened. Um, at that point, you know, it was a year out from me coming home from Lawrence, and um, you know, it was a whole new batch of people. That I had never seen, of course.
0: A whole new batch of people as the patients in the class?
1: Yeah, as the patients in the class, but actually the nurses at OHSU at that time kind of rotated between being um, pre- and post-transplant coordinators. So I knew the names of them, but I hadn't necessarily met them because they had previously been... On the other side of it from where I was so it was some different nurses doing the classes than I had met
0: so you went back to summer camp and all the counselors were different and it was a new batch of kids yeah
1: and the food was weird and and they didn't have archery it was so sad but yeah at a certain point when they were talking about the care for the transplant and everything that was required um, somebody piped up which you know happens oh I have a question I have a comment You know, it's a pretty informal, very small class of like eight people and said, I know what you're talking about, uh, because I heard from my nurse that there was this kid recently who got a transplant and everything was going really well. And then he went off to college and got all involved with college and doing that. And he was young, didn't take it very seriously. So he didn't take his meds. And so he lost the transplant. So, yeah, that is really serious. When you say we need to always take our meds and do all the things we're supposed to do, like, you really need to do that, because I heard totally there was this guy that this could happen to. And so I I realized in that moment, you know, first of all, oh, my goodness, he's talking about me. Second of all, that's not the whole story. And
0: Right, everything was going great until that kid messed (laughs) up is exactly how that kidney
1: was working. Yeah, and, and third, that they had decided to use me as a cautionary tale. And from what I could tell, they had, I'm going to say purposely, but I, I don't know for sure, that, but they had purposely chosen to tell it in a specific way as a cautionary tale. Like, I kind of recognize this as somebody who had experienced teaching, that sometimes you sort of say, well, there are seven facts about this, but I really need you to understand these three. So I'm going to ignore four, maybe until later when you're ready for nuance about this particular thing. That's what they had seemed to do. They didn't, hadn't said anything about uremia. They hadn't said anything about the kinked ureter or the stent or any of that.
0: All these things that affected you mentally. and Yeah. Yeah, this is a thing. In making this podcast, this is sort of the stretch of the story that I was the most nervous about telling this story. Yeah, me too. And it's because, on the one hand, this, make, this part makes me angry. <laughs> uh, because I feel like an unfair thing was done to you and unfair assumptions were made and you were portrayed as irresponsible when you were not. On the other hand, I don't want to be blasé about the fact that it's really important for people to take their medication. Yeah. And I can appreciate why your doctors and nurses would have wanted this convenient cautionary tale to tell other patients, oh, it's really important to take your meds. Here's this guy who messed up. Yeah. But it's also not fair to take somebody who's also probably dealing with a bunch of stuff, uh, who had organ failure, (laughs) and kind of cast them as this kind of irresponsible villain in this story.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I will say they, they weren't like, so there's this kid, his name was Ari Deckard, here's his photo, he went to this school and this place. Like They didn't say any of that, and I feel pretty confident in saying that had he even known that it was possible I was in the room, he wouldn't have said that. That, that was what was interesting is that it was like, ooh, I'm there and he's talking about me, but he doesn't know it. Like, we don't get to experience that. And the little, I guess, weird gossipy part of me was like, ooh, ooh interesting. But on the other hand, wait, hold on. What the heck, man? Well, it's always really easy to be judgmental about
0: other people's health decisions.
1: Yeah, yeah that's true.
0: Or it wasn't even a decision of yours. You had like serious mental yeah. problems that were happening. But I was thinking about... You know, one of the times that you were doing in-center dialysis mm. and they were getting you set up on the machine and I was sitting in the waiting room with somebody else who who was waiting for dialysis. Maybe they had an hour till they get on the machine.
1: Okay. And I we think been, I know what this is. Yeah,
0: we've been talking. We talked in the last episode about the important diet restrictions on dialysis, how you're supposed to super, super limit fluid because, yeah. like, because it'll make you feel awful coming off the machine if they take a bunch of fluid off. Yeah. And you need to really limit your sodium intake mm-hmm. and potassium, which is in bananas and potatoes. And so I'm sitting next to this person who's going to go on the machine and they have a giant McDonald's bag in front of them. They're drinking, out of a, they're drinking a soda out of a super cup and like super-sized French fries. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, dude. Yeah, I remember that. You're going to feel terrible really soon. Like the consequences of that are going to come back to you today. Yeah. It, it's going to make you feel so bad. And the thing is, what that person eats does not affect me. And it's not my business. No. And they have to make their own calculus. I don't know how much money they have for food. I don't know what their schedule is like in terms of when and how much time they have to get food and where they're able to go. Right. And I don't know what calculus they're doing in terms of how delicious those fries are, how much it's <laughs> worth it.
1: Yeah.
0: And that having a disability or having this chronic illness can compromise your privacy in a lot of ways. You're in waiting rooms with people who might see decisions you're making. You're in hospital rooms where you have two to three roommates who get to overhear every conversation you have with your loved ones or your insurance provider. Yeah. Or, you know, your your financial and personal decisions are often very much on display. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, we're doing a whole podcast where we're making some things very public. Yeah, right. And, you know, worrying about judgment and then thinking about reserving judgment for other people and trying to kind of interpret things generously mm-hmm. and let people just make their own decisions without the weight of you scowling down at them sometimes
1: right right
0: and that might sound self-serving because you and i might want to avoid judgment for things but
1: yeah yeah and i mean kind of coming back to this specific incident you know I, i felt very judged and i felt really bad um and i mean you know this very well but sometimes in a situation like that i kind of retreat emotionally and that's definitely what i did but i also had this moment briefly where i was like wait that didn't happen Or not that didn't happen, but that's not how that happened. And I almost spoke up, which especially at the time was very unlike me. And then I kind of paused. I remember feeling my parents kind of tense up when he said something. And when the three of us just kind of said, okay, wait, let's just let that happen and move on. Because I could tell from the way the nurse reacted, like, keep cool, but he's sitting there. Like, she knew sort of the mistake that this guy had made.
0: Well, it's not that guy's mistake.
1: Right. But it revealed something that they'd been doing that they wouldn't necessarily want me to know about.
0: Yeah, that was the question I was going to ask is, does that affect your trust in your care providers if they're kind of talking out of school about you?
1: (laughs) Um, You know, a little bit, a little bit. Um, But at the same time, I think, like I said, I recognized sometimes you need a cautionary tale. And it's easier when there's one that's at least relatively truthful it's one thing to say well you know i've seen it happen a million times it's another thing when you can say listen nine months ago this kid came home you know you and and you have you can throw in actual details because it actually happened as opposed to well yeah i remember this one guy about 20 years ago that doesn't i mean it affects you but it was 20 years ago so uh, part of my um I don't think I said this when we talked about the all the requirements in the blacklist. You know, I had to go to all my appointments on time and take my meds and that stuff, which is not a big deal. But they also, I didn't say required, maybe it was suggested. But anyway, I had to go see a therapist. And it was the first time I'd done that seriously and regularly. I'd seen a therapist a few times in high school, I guess kind of for obvious reasons, because I had chronic disease that we weren't exactly sure was chronic yet. But I started seeing this therapist uh, pretty soon after coming home. I think even before I started back on dialysis. And I saw him regularly. I think it started about once a week. And by the time I went back to college four years later, we were at maybe once a month or twice a month. But it was really great to just go and be able to see somebody and just talk about, you know, whatever, but mostly, well, this is what's going on in my health and this is how it's affecting my life and this is what I'm feeling about. So I had I saw him, like, that week, a few days later, and it was the thing I brought to the session. Like, hey, this thing happened, and I'm feeling really lots of things about it. Um, and, you know, we talked about it for a long time, and I remember him specifically saying, I'm glad you didn't say something. And I think now... I, I, I am also glad I didn't say something. At the time, I was like all kind of ruffled and like, well, no, things are wrong. You know, I got to say the right thing. got to correct the record. Yeah, I got to correct the record. But um, I think he was right. And I, I think it's not just now. For a long time, I thought he was right. That the point of that thing wasn't to be down on me. They'd already been down on me. I was already in that place. The point was really that these other patients needed to know that it was to be taken seriously and kind of related to that. Then I should also say that my nurses um, in the several years post that while I was waiting for a transplant asked me to be, I don't remember what they called it, but sort of a mentor to a couple of other younger patients, um, generally people between 17 and 22 or so who were on the list or maybe about to get a, a living donor transplant. Um, just to say, like, listen, tell your story and offer to be there as a resource, but to kind of say, like, you need to take this seriously. And, you know, in one case, it was uh, a young woman, and I, I don't know what happened with her, and I honestly don't even remember her name, which makes me feel really bad, who was in college and on dialysis, which was amazing to me. There was no way I could have done that. And she was, at the beginning of our conversation, or one of our conversations, Kind of poo pooing the idea of taking some of the things seriously that our shared nurse was saying she needed to take seriously. Like what? Well, she's like, oh, yeah, she's always talking about like you shouldn't share beer bottles. And I was like, there's at least two things really seriously wrong with that. You know, <laughs> like you're not going to be able to have alcohol. Um, that was a big no no. It's like no alcohol at all. And you can't share food with anybody. You're going to be on heavy, heavy immunosuppressive medication, and any little thing that might not even make them symptomatic could make you sick. And she's like, yeah, but not really. And I was like, yeah, really. You've got to understand, like, I got sick from using a piano that somebody else had used when they were sick three days before, even sometimes after I'd wiped it down with a baby wipe. And, like, it's... And I, I, I knew that's why it was, not just because I'm out in the world. You know, I I got sick and I wasn't like putting my mouth on something that somebody else had put their mouth on. You're going to get sick and you can't do things like that. Um, so, you know, they, they... Now you're
0: using someone else as a cautionary tale.
1: Exactly. I am. Um, I, I think that she got the point and I, I hope and think she got the transplant. I hope she's doing great today. But it, it was a thing where, you know, having been used sort of unwittingly as a cautionary tale, then I was able to be to sort of use myself more actively um, with her and a, a, at least one other person who was younger and heading into this kind of big scary thing that I hadn't known was going to be big and scary when I was slightly younger than I was when I was talking to them.
0: So once you get on the list, you're waiting for a donor, and this is in this case it would be. If somebody dies and is an organ donor and has some, has, has a match for you, right. then you would get a call.
1: Yes. They would call my pager.
0: So you have a pager.
1: I have a pager. There's a whole special thing. This was in the very early 2000s, like literally 1999, 2000, and... I think they said, well, if you want to buy a cell phone, I guess we could use that. And I was like, well, that sounds amazing, but I don't need a cell phone.
0: (laughs) What an impossible luxury. What an
1: impossible luxury. Uh, It was such a ridiculous idea to me. and. Also, I couldn't afford it. So they paid for the pager, and it was really specifically a dedicated thing. It wasn't like, now you got a pager. Share it with everybody, and then they can call you. So I felt like a huge dork, and I wore this everywhere. And I felt really anxious about it sometimes, because for a long time, I was even weird about going to a movie, because I didn't want to pay, and this is going to sound laughable now, $7 to go to a movie and have to like leave in the middle if my pager goes off.
0: So if that pager goes off, that is the call.
1: Yes. Um, that's what it's supposed to be. If you get page and, you know, I recognize the hospital phone number, so you get it and then you call them and you say, Hey, this is Aaron Deckard. And they say, okay, well, we need you to be at the hospital right now or in two hours or what, or they would have, if they'd ever called my pager, they did not. The thing about the pager is when you have one, especially at the time, they still weren't super common. People start going, Oh, Hey, could I get that? So I can just get in touch with you. And you're like, Oh, actually, no, it's a transplant pager. No thank, Sorry. And that was a little weird. And then, you know, I said I was fencing and that's, that's true. You don't really want to wear a pager while you're, you know, jumping around with a sword. I mean, fake sword, but sword. And so I would ask, um, the front desk to hold on to it while I fenced and even like during a tournament. So all day, here it is. They all knew the deal. Listen, this is for a transplant. It's very important. If I am in the middle of a bout, I don't care if I'm fencing for the top seed for you know a gold medal i do not care stop it i will forfeit i i'm not joking come get me and they were like oh no problem like they were all cool people i will say though one of the guys i'm still friends with him he was a cool guy but he had that kind of sense of humor where like he couldn't help himself and so multiple times i would come back at the end of the evening after fencing for two or three hours to collect it and he would say like Oh, hey, this buzzed a few times. Hope is no big deal. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My yeah. body is literally dying. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, it was fine. And the weird thing also was a couple times I got wrong numbers on it. Oh, no. And you you have to call because maybe somebody, for some reason, they're calling from a, a number that's not an OHSU prefix. And so I would call, and it was always some, I, I don't know why, but it was always some little old lady who had no idea what I was talking about. It was a different little old lady, but I would call and say, like, hey, I got a page from this number. And it was always like, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, okay, you just put me in this really intense emotional space. And now you've got to come down. <laughs> and like, oh, okay, it's a wrong number, and I don't really want to take this out on you because you have no idea. Um but all right. Thank you. Bye. Please don't mess this up again. <laughs> um, and I I feel like often I'm sort of saying these negative things and complaining like I am amused by that. At the time, it was very like fraught, but then it was OK. Then I took my pager and put it on and went on with my life, basically.
0: Okay, so you're doing your regular life, you're teaching, you're Mm -hmm. fencing, and you have this pager. Yeah. What's the next part of this story? Because you just gave a little bit away. You said they never called you.
1: Right. They never called me. So um, this is a thing that's, I mean, we were saying this is a sort of the episode that we're both a little nervous about talking about. And part of it for me is that I'm a little bit, maybe not just a little bit, I'm protective of my uncles um, in that. We spoke earlier about my first transplant and everybody lining up and saying, okay, R needs a new kidney, and they tested all these people, and these people are eligible donors, and these people are not. And those of you keeping track, I kind of worry maybe are going, okay, well, this person is available and gave a kidney, and these people are still available, my two uncles, and um, what's up with those guys? And the fact is, and so I feel a little defensive because of them, because I was. I went on the list rather than them jumping to give me a kidney. And it wasn't that they weren't jumping. It was that at that specific point in both of their lives, they were really, I mean, busy sounds so wishy-washy in a certain way, like so unimportant, but they were really busy and involved with all the things they were doing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really easy to say, oh, yeah. if it were my relative, I would drop everything. Right. But like your Uncle Michael who, spoiler, is going to play a very important role in this story. <laughs> he lived in another state from you yes. and from your doctors.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He had a full-time job. Mm-hmm. He had a family. Yeah. He had a special needs child. Yeah, You can't just drop everything sometimes. No. And that's, I imagine, really emotionally hard when it's a family member you love.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was a, really a big deal. I mean, both Michaels have families. Both all of... Their kids were sort of at a, an age where you've got to be more involved. They were in like middle school, high school, and there was a lot of stuff going on with everybody. And also, the specifics aren't important, but they were both at sort of really critical points in their careers when it wasn't not just convenient, but it would have been really bad to suddenly have a three-month interruption with your time. So that was sort of off the table for a while and I was it was fine cuz I was doing all this stuff I was doing I was on the list it was okay and so you were saying you know it's oh it's really easy to say why don't these people just drop everything cuz lots of people say that and you know it's 3 to 6 months of recovery and other stuff that's going on and I I specifically remember this <laughs> this sort of incident I guess uh where I was at Westview and one of my fellow teachers, I was talking with them about something and we were kind of talking about, I think like loyalty or so. It was a very strange conversation, but like I'll back you up in this situation and that kind of stuff. And we had known each other for six months, a year or so at that point, they knew at least some of my health stuff or I thought they did. And they were kind of saying those things that you say, like, yeah, you know, I'll be there for you. A kid says you said this and then I ask you, and then you actually said this other thing. I'll back you up. You know, whatever you need. You need a kidney? I'll give you a kidney. And she just kind of tossing (laughs) this stuff off. And I remember just kind of like freezing and going, do I want to address that? Because if that's a real offer, should I take that seriously? Because I really need one. I mean, like, no joke. Really, I I need one of those, but I don't think you have any idea what you're actually saying and not in like your dumb way, but like you don't realize the implications of that. The fact that you're just sort of throwing off this thing that we kind of say like, Hey, you need a kidney? I'd give you a kidney. I love you, man. But that's an actual real need for the person you're talking to. And it's a really serious, long commitment that you're making. (laughs) So it's, it's an impactful thing at the time they were still doing what's called open nephrectomies. Uh, which means they put a giant incision in your side and the back in order to reach in and, you know, then surgically remove the organ, and that's a, a major recovery. It's a giant incision. Right, it's
0: a major abdominal surgery.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's it's sort of easy to say, well, it's a major surgery, but like I've seen those scars, it's a big deal.
0: And. I want to interject a little bit because I definitely don't want anything we say to discourage someone from being a donor. Oh, not at all. And also, it's gotten a lot better now, and they can do laparoscopic surgery. Right. And so if you are interested in being a donor, that's an incredible thing to do, and I would never want to discourage anyone from doing it. Not at all. And, But I also want to recognize it's not a casual thing to do. It's a really serious, really incredibly wonderful, nice thing to do.
1: Yeah, it's all those things at once.
0: One of the things I was thinking about... Was there's, a, there's that Louis C.K. routine okay. where he talks about flying first class <laughs> and seeing a guy who's a, like an American soldier coming home in his uniform mm-hmm. heading back into coach. And he thinks, oh, it would be a really nice thing to do if I gave up my first class seat and then went back and sat in his assigned seat because I he'd get to do this thing. And, oh, man, that would be so nice of me. And he said, uh-huh. I didn't do it, but I was thinking, man, it was so nice of me to think about doing that. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's a little bit like that. <laughs> Maybe higher stakes. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned laparoscopy because that's a technology that was starting to be developed during this exact time, and that became important because um, a laparoscope is this tube, and it's not a little tube, it's a kind of a big tube, but it's a way of doing a much less invasive surgery. So you don't cut a large, large incision. You make several small-ish incisions. I want to say about three inches or so instead of eight to 12. And you're able to, using this extremely complex, really cool device, remove this organ um, with this machine and um, do that. And so recovery time is much better. And they were sort of developing that at like maybe two centers maximum in 2000, 2001, 2002, and it started to become more common as they had really perfected it and more surgeons went and trained at those particular centers in the country. And so, you know, I'd had this pager forever, and then in 2003, things kind of coalesced. So uh, my Uncle Michael, who you already spoiled, (laughs) has a big role to play, had sort of an availability life-wise when he could afford to do that, especially because laparoscopic surgery was finally common enough that OHSU was doing it. And not just like, oh, we've done a couple, but they had done a number of them and were much more comfortable with it, and it was a good, safe thing to do. And that meant that his recovery time, instead of being three to six months, was like three months or less that uh he was and still is i think a big golfer and so um it meant that he could be back golfing in like a month or two instead of half a year and i'm saying that like that's the most important thing it's not but of course we joked like it was so um
0: and it's you know i've met your uncle michael many times (laughs) he's just incredible person. I love him so much. Yeah. <laughs> I really love your Uncle Michael. He's such a great guy. I love meeting him at your family gatherings and seeing him again. Mm-hmm. And there's a balance here I want to strike because I want to make sure that everybody knows this guy who gave you this kidney is an incredible nice person who did this nice thing. And I also know that every time I have told him that, he has gone, oh no, 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 and deferred, and mm-hmm. you know, don't please don't say anything nice about me. So I will try to limit the amount of gushing that we do, <laughs> <laughs> we do about Michael. But he's an incredibly sweet Nice person who did an incredible, wonderful thing for you.
1: Yeah, he really is. So, you know, he started getting tested and that went pretty well. Um, And I knew this was happening, but it was always like, well, maybe the next step this would get precluded for some reason or another.
0: He might get eliminated.
1: Yeah. At some point he might get eliminated from the process and then... You know, I just stay on the list, probably. So you're trying not to get your hopes up? I really was. And that's a strange thing, because most of my students at that point knew what was going on with me to an extent. I mean, I wasn't going into tons of details, but they knew I was on dialysis. They knew I had kidney disease and that I needed a transplant. Some kids even at some point had mentioned like, well, you know, if I was 18, I might give you a kidney in much more of a serious way than my colleague had kind of thrown that off, which was really sweet of them, but they weren't 18. And I, I wasn't sure how I felt about that anyway.
0: It might make you feel a little creepy.
1: Well, yeah, a little predatory. And also, like, I didn't feel like necessarily they knew exactly what they were saying. But, I mean, it was, it was also, like I said, a moot point. They were, you know, sometimes 15 and saying that, oh, if, if I, I was doing this in three years, well, it's not in three years. So uh, he started getting tested. But what I'm trying to say is he started getting tested, and I didn't feel like he could tell anybody. Um, it's kind of like that thing, like, well, we just got a pregnancy test back and we want it. We're excited, but you got to wait.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: I, was, I had to wait. And then we were able to sort of schedule the, uh, the actual transplant. And that meant, oh, it's going to happen. This was also a, uh, a special kind of transplant. It was slightly riskier. It was what they called a previous positive cross-match transplant.
0: Okay, what does that mean?
1: So I mentioned before cross-matching. And that's, like I said, an early test. It's a really easy determiner. Is this a place where we can go forward or not? Because all you got to do is make some blood. And when they first did the cross match, they got a positive cross match, which means my blood said, get out of here, I don't like you, to Michael's blood. And then they did it again a little bit later, and I'm going to say like a month. I don't think it was like they waited an hour, and it was negative. And so that's the kind of thing where they say, well... I don't know. know, rolling the dice. Yeah, it's not exactly a roll of the dice. They've done this kind of thing before. They have a lot of science to back it up, but it meant that they had thought about, okay, so we want to do a few extra types of immunosuppressive therapy post-transplant because this is riskier. Because once they did all the other testing, it all looked good, but there had been that one positive cross-match, which is...
0: Could be an indicator.
1: Yeah, it could be an indicator. So they gave us a date of April 1st, 2003. For surgery. For surgery, yeah. Which we thought was a really appropriate date because it's April Fool's Day and we're kind of the goofier people in the family. Not that my family is super serious, but we tend to think of ourselves as the fools. So um, it was (laughs) April Fool's Day transplant of the fools and we were very excited about it. And at that point then in, say, February or March, I had to start telling people. You know, it it went from, don't tell anybody we don't know what's happening to it is happening. And it's happening on this day and I'm going to be gone for this long. And so I, you know, the family knew, but I had to tell friends and I had to go tell my students and I had to go tell my bosses like, Hey, I'm not going to be at work for a couple of months. And my employment position wasn't such that I had to actually ask for time off. I was sort of like this volunteer coach that was sometimes getting paid by the parents, but it just meant that I needed to say, I can't be here for this time, and it was a really important time too. Because one of the big things that happened at in the Westview band was that we were state champions or champion contenders in the state band contest, which happened in April or May every year. It still does, and so that meant I was going to be missing either the actual contest itself or at least the run up to. Because I was going to be out for a month, two months at least, and I was like, "Oh no, you know this is important. We've been working on this forever." But the transplant was obviously more important. So I went and told my boss, and he was really excited. And I said, I haven't told my kids yet. And he said, okay, cool, Um, I'll let you do that. And then either that day or the next day, because I hadn't told them yet, I was going to pull the percussion kids aside and say, hey, got to talk to you about this. And um, we were in the middle of rehearsal, and my boss, the director, the band director, was talking about some logistics for the coming months. You know, we're headed towards... The state contest, as we always are, and it's going to happen on this date, which means we're going to have some after-school rehearsals for this week, and we're going to do this at this time, we're going to meet on Saturday here, and this. And I could tell as he was speaking that part of what he was thinking in terms of logistics was, and also Ari's not here, or not going to be here, which means that the person who usually organizes all the percussion instruments that we need to take and some of the other transportation issues and various other responsibilities I had, either he was going to need to take on or the kids were going to need to take more responsibility, either of which was fine, but that was a thing that was going to need to happen that hadn't happened at that school for two years or three years. And so he, I could tell that was on his head and on his mind. And he was kind of talking this through about all this stuff with the kids. And then he sort of just paused. And I was in the back of the room with the percussion section. And he looked at me. He said, well, can I tell them? And I I was like, well, I wanted to tell him, but he was so excited, and it would have been really weird to be like, no, don't tell them. It's a mystery, kids. So I said, yes, of course. And so he said, and Ari is not going to be with us for this time, so we're going to have to change the way we've done things for a few years, because he's getting a transplant at the beginning of April. And there was this sort of stunned silence because i realized oh about 15 kids don't know or remember Have no idea yeah like a what and a something what's up with ari and then the rest of the kids know some degree of ari is sick and has this issue some of whom knew a ton about it because i worked directly with them all the time and then they were all they like applauded which is a really Aww. yeah it was really sweet but it's also kind of a strange thing like I'm getting applauded for having surgery. (laughs) And I I also, you know, sometimes have trouble taking praise. So um, it was very sweet and I really appreciated it. And they were all really excited for me. And because of the environment of that school and in that class, it was, it was like, no problem. They're just like, of course we'll take care of this. I sat down with the kids that I needed to sit down with and help them run through some of the logistics that they were going to need to take care of because I wasn't doing it. And they were like, no problem, Mari, we got you back. And, It was easy.
0: So you've got the surgery scheduled for April 1st. Yeah. And this is a thing that I know happened during that time, and we haven't talked about it yet. Because we've talked about 24-hour urine analysis (laughs) on several of these podcasts. But I feel like there's another medical jug in your life.
1: Mm, Another medical jug. I had never thought about it in those terms.
0: That's what I'm here for.
1: Yes. Well, and I get to tell the gross stories. So uh, during this time, as part of general health, but also just because I was a transplant patient, at some point I had some um, intestinal issues that they needed to check out. It turned out that I had like a polyp. And the reason that they needed to check it out is because um, I think it's sort of some routine thing. They also did a stool sample and that was a little bit new to me. You know, I'd been peeing jugs forever, but I hadn't been doing the other thing. And they found like a little bit of blood or something and they were concerned. So they needed to check it out, which meant I needed a colonoscopy. And If you're a man over 40, you've had one of these. And if you're not, it's unlikely you have. I've had now a lot of them.
0: Maybe close to a dozen.
1: Yeah, I was going to say about a dozen. And so this was like my first one, or I had my first two or three during this time. And I think even then, my, my dad hadn't had one. And so I got to be the first person in the house to do it. And the way that works is they give you this giant jug, like way bigger, I imagine, or I remember it being way bigger than an actual urine jug full of this chemical.
0: So like a milk jug size?
1: I remember it being bigger. Bigger than a milk jug. In my mind, it's, you know, like a wine barrel size, which is not accurate, <laughs> but it's a lot. It's, I think it is more than a gallon. It might be two gallons. It might just be one, and I, my memory has inflated it because of the monumental task that it represented. Uh, so this is a, a laxative for <laughs> in, in understatement land, basically. It's, it's this, this medication that you take that is designed to completely clean you out over the course of several hours so that when they go in, there's nothing there to obstruct their view or their, um, their tools. And um, it is not fun. And it's uh, they give you flavor packets of your choice. You can have sort of standard, I don't know, Gatorade flavors. Lemon-lime? Yeah, lemon-lime is one of them. There's a couple of red flavors, but you're generally not allowed to choose those because red might eventually look like blood when they do the test and they don't want to mistake flavor packets for blood so your choice is sort of if i remember like grape or lemon lime or maybe orange but what did you pick probably lemon lime i think each time i had it i tried a different one in the vague faint hope that the next one would actually be a flavor because really what they are in my experience is a scented dye they change the color of of this mix a little bit like you get a pale green a very very pale green that when you open it smells mostly like the medication with a whiff of lemon lime and then you go to taste it and it tastes like the same awful chemical that it always tastes like and
0: see this seems like it might just make it worse
1: oh it does it does it sort of promises this thing and then not only fails to deliver, it somehow just, it makes it worse. It's like this betrayal of the flavor packet. <laughs> the, the actual medication, because it's got a lot of um, stuff in it, that's a really technical term, it's, it's, it's like a suspension. And so the fluid itself is very thick. Like but, a soup? Well, that would be pleasant. I, I was trying to think like it's sort of like maybe it's not quite as as thick as syrup, but almost like soup is pleasant because you want it to be kind of thick and warm and hearty. This is cold and it's supposed to be cold. it has to be cold, which makes it worse. It's kind of like if you decided to eat jello without giving it the full two hours or i don't know what the time on jello is
0: unset jello
1: yeah, it's unset jello, so it's this cold, thick liquid that feels unnaturally thick and it tastes chalky, but also like something else that you don't want to eat. And you have to drink a full eight ounce glass of it every half hour. And it's very important that you don't sip it. It can't be I sip it over half an hour. You have to drink that whole eight ounces in like one minute. You have to kind of chug it. And it's so not fun. Anybody who's ever done this is listening is like, oh yeah, this, I hope, I hope they, you think this is accurate. And I also hope that your experience is so much better than mine was. Because every time I had to do this, I just dreaded it. Um, and then on top of that, of course, it immediately makes you have to sit on the toilet for a long time. And to the point that once you start... Getting everything out, there's this place where you might have to just sit on the toilet and drink it because you can't leave for long um. enough to like mix the stuff. It's the most unpleasant evening you can have.
0: See, this is an interesting thing on the production side of the podcast. When I'm editing the feed, there's always this thing, you can check the box, you know, are, are there explicit lyrics yeah. in this podcast? And I always say no, you know, we try to not to curse or swear, but I also, then it, then it gets labeled in iTunes as clean, and so I'm picturing this this story.
1: Right, I feel like I've spent a great deal of time explaining in maybe too much detail this really not fun experience. Um, so that was, that's the lengthy story of the other jugs in my life during this time period.
0: Okay, and we mentioned this in the last podcast and said we'd tell the story, but this is also mm-hmm. the period of time when you and I met. Yeah. So you were teaching at Westview, but then you got the job with the Oregon Crusaders Drum and Bugle Corps. Right. And like you, I am also a percussionist. Yes. And so I had actually already been in the Oregon Crusaders Drum and Bugle Corps in the pit playing mallet percussion the year before that. I started in 2002 and we did not have a dedicated pit instructor. The other percussion instructors tried to cover coaching or we just run rehearsals ourselves. And so the big news in 2003 was we're finally getting somebody to help out. And they said, okay, it's going to be this guy who teaches at Westview. His name is Ari. And I went, okay. And you're a little nervous who's the new person going to (laughs) be. And um, my high school percussion teacher knew you. Oh right. And uh, he said, yeah, um, Ari, I went to college with him briefly. He was at Lawrence when I was there. (laughs) And I said, oh, what's he like? Is he cool? And the thing that he said, the first thing I ever heard from anybody else about you was, I don't remember. He was sick a lot, I think. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy.
0: And I was I was thinking about this. Just I haven't thought about that. Probably since it happened, but I was sort of recollecting my memories for the podcast. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we've known each other for almost 15 years. (laughs) Right. And, you know, our relationship has moved from you being a coach and instructor to me, to us being friends, to then having a romantic partnership and then being spouses. And I think of that whole relationship is so separate from your health. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an illusion because your health is so present in everything. Mm -hmm. And so to think back to this other time, realizing like, oh no, that was right there from the very beginning before I met you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I didn't even know that until years later.
0: That's the first thing I knew about you.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And so I hadn't I'd only known you for a few months when you said I'm gonna have to take some time off. I'm having a kidney transplant on April first. Yeah. And I remember going home and going, Hey, so I guess this this guy, I didn't know this, he has he's going to have a kidney transplant. I had no idea. And my, my family <laughs> reacting, thinking, whoa, that is a big deal.
1: Yeah, it is a big deal. <laughs> I think that I at that point, we were still having monthly weekend rehearsals. So in the March rehearsal, I I think I sat everybody down and said, so FYI, I don't think you know any of this. So this is going to be a lot all at once, but I have these kidney issues, and I'm okay, but I'm also not quite okay because I need to have a transplant. And good news, it's going to be next month. (laughs) Uh, Bad news, it's going to be next month, and I won't see you for that rehearsal and maybe the one after. And that's just kind of how that went.
0: So how did the surgery with Michael go?
1: Really well. It was good. I remember pretty much my whole family gathered yet again. It was a very early morning surgery so we all kind of met. Uh, he and his family were, I think, fairly nervous.
0: About the procedure?
1: Yeah, about the procedure. And I mean, you know, he's totally fine. He's great. And he was and has been ever since that time. But this was, you know, it, it's it's a big thing. And he, like, in contrast to his father, you know, hadn't had as many medical things at that point. And it's a thing that I think I've had to come to realize as I've gotten older, which is that, like, I'm sort of fluent in hospital. <laughs> I mean, I knew that, but that I didn't always know that other people aren't. And not just that, but that, like, when I hear that somebody's having major surgery, I can go, oh, okay. Hey, I hope you're okay. It's probably going to be fine. You know, you're in good hands. I, I know all the things that means for them. But You, the, you have a
0: pretty detailed Image in your head of what that's going to be like.
1: Yeah, I really do. But what I don't have a great image of is the thing that I encounter fairly regularly, which is that the terror that some people have, which I think is fairly understandable, in having even what I would consider a moderate or minor procedure, because they're like, well, I never get sick. Or I go to the doctor once a year, maybe, for an annual checkup. Not because they don't take care of themselves, but because they do take care of themselves, and they're fine. And I've basically never been fine, and so, in a way, that terror is so normalized for me. It's just like, well, yeah, and then you go do this every once in a while.
0: So, at this point in your life, if you were going to estimate, how many nights do you think you had spent in a hospital?
1: Oh, gosh. Quite a few more nights are actually in my future, but it's at least a solid month, if not longer, at that point. Which is, you know, it's just a lot, way more than the average person.
0: So the surgery goes fine for both you and Michael.
1: Yeah. And they put us in the same room like they do, which is nice. Because then you get to like, hey, we did this thing together. You did this thing for me. We'll recover together. And so we did. And I think a thing I didn't talk about with the first transplant and (laughs) when you've had serious anesthetic, that one of the things that takes the longest to kind of wake up is your gut's and so a really big sign that you're really coming out of the anesthetic a day or two or three later fully is that your intestines start working. And so a really, really big important thing that all the nurses and doctors are paying attention to is who's farting and how often and when.
0: So I'm sure you and Michael found this hilarious. We,
1: we did find it hilarious. It allowed us to indulge. I will. It's very tempting to say it allowed us to indulge our inner four-year-old, but let's be honest, it allowed us to just indulge ourselves um, we, we enjoyed that a lot. You know, we're having not really competitions cause you don't want to strain anything, but like, Oh, I farted three times today. You know, that was a good source of recovery for us. Um, and also, uh, they always want you walking as soon as possible and as much as possible. And so we were kind of like, well, I did seven laps this morning. How many do you do? Oh, well I did eight laps. Okay. Well maybe I'll throw in another one after lunch. And, we had a good time doing that. I mean, we we're both in massive pain, but like we, we had a good time.
0: And how long did it take before you were both out of the hospital?
1: Um, he got released first, but I was out in about a week, I think a day less than that.
0: And I think next episode we will get into sort of the anti-rejection treatments they mm-hmm. did with you, including, I think, my favorite mad scientist process you ever went through in the course. <laughs> but I think that's where we'll, we'll stop it now and then we'll pick up. Next week with the right after the second transplant stories. Um, We don't actually have any listener mail for today. But um, if we're not going to have any listener mail, I'll just make up my own question. (laughs) Okay. Which is that you have a mutation of um, two of your genes so Mm -hmm. that you can't process collagen 4. That's how Alport syndrome works. Yeah. Which means you are a mutant. Yes. So if you were living in the (laughs) X-Men universe. (laughs) Okay. Would Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants try to kill you, do you think? Because you're a human, or do you count enough as a mutant for them not to go after you?
1: That's a great question. Um,
0: I can't believe you've never thought about this.
1: Yeah, I can't either, actually. It's it's sort of stunning that I've never thought about that. (sighs) Because the real question is, do I have powers, right?
0: Is that what matters?
1: It might matter to them. Like, if if the way I have to demonstrate it is by showing a piece of paper with, like, G's and A's and whatever on it, then I feel like they're going to go, yeah, so what? (laughs) I feel like it's some sort of... It's the same test under, like, technical people who get dual citizenship. Like, well, no, you don't understand. My great-great-grandfather was from here or something. Um, Probably. My only hope... I suppose, would then be that while I was not enough of a mutant for the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is a really great self-chosen name, by the way, um, to want to kill me, that I might be able to convince uh, Professor X at all that I have enough of a mutation that I was one of them.
0: Would it matter to Magneto that your family is Jewish since he is a Holocaust survivor?
1: You know what? This is. I, I have to admit, like, we're getting pretty nerdy here, and I have to say, like, I don't know because I don't know how important he thinks that is.
0: Yeah, really? I kind of wish they would deal with that more, and I don't know if they have in the comics, like, in, <laughs> in the intersectionality of his Jewish identity mm-hmm. and a Holocaust survivor with his desire to commit genocide himself.
1: Well, I mean,
0: and I'd also, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to see the X Men talk about, you know, race and gender and mutant genes.
1: Yeah, if only. If only they would finally touch on political issues in Marvel Comics. I mean...
0: Not <laughs> well, mean political issues. I just mean it seems like everybody's just a mutant and nothing else. And, you know, Storm go- moves through the world differently than Cyclops. And not just because she can fly. Not just because she can
1: fly. <laughs> That's true. I was just saying, like, their whole existence is intended to be a metaphor for the other stuff. Always and forever. And Anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. You would think. You throw something out there. W- why not give Magneto... Like, make him make a choice. Okay, there's this guy, and he's totally not a mutant, so he deserves to die, but he's a rabbi. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. What do you do?
0: But you gotta... So, you gotta make a call, though. Human or mutant in the X-Men universe?
1: X-Men universe? I think, ultimately, human. Um, Actually, honestly, and maybe for obvious reasons, what this makes me think of is there's this book and it examines this idea that there's a society or a country that requires you to, quote, have magic. And if you don't, you're exiled. And he sort of talks about like, at a certain point, this get this idea gets so diluted that, well, as long as you just have magic and one kid had been born and the power he had was that he could change the color of his urine, which obviously, you know, resonates with me in a certain way. And he just said that's what his power was, and he's like, "Well, sorry, that's what my power is." And they're like, "Well, that's stupid." But also, we don't really need to see it, and <laughs> and so the whole point was like, really, what does it matter if if it's that level? And they don't even need to see it, but you have that power. So my mutation is really only harmful to me in that way, and I don't I don't feel like it uh, it passes the sniff test for the the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. <laughs> You know, the, the funny kind of thing about this mutant question in general, too, is that I think sometime in the last couple of years, maybe you started saying, or maybe a friend or two of ours started using the mutant word or the mutation word and about my disease and me. And well,
0: it's, it's kind of more fun than illness yeah. or disease.
1: Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I know that that's what's going on. I've known that for years about Alport syndrome and, and the collagen 4 stuff. But for some reason, I never connected that. You know, I'm a sort of comic book guy in a general nerdy way. And as a kid, you know, there are many ways. Hang on.
0: In a general way. When we moved to New York, we had to pack up and sell a lot of comic books that we weren't taking with us. Well,
1: okay. (laughs) I feel like that makes it seem like I was, uh, I didn't regularly read or have a subscription to comic books, but I liked them as a kid. But many kids feel like outsiders in different ways, and that's sort of the whole X-Men thing, of course. And I certainly felt that way in many ways, and especially because of my disease. Obviously, that was yet another way that I felt like an outsider. But I never associated my disease and the fact that it is a mutation with the fact that I was reading about mutants. That, like, technically speaking, I am a mutant... And, you know, so is Aurora or somebody like I did not make that connection at all until like the last couple of years. And so you asked me this question and I go, oh, right. That would be a thing.
0: Well, what I think is also kind of telling is that I asked you human or mutant and you said human and every other nerd I know would jump at the chance or any excuse, like, nope, I'm a mutant, it counts.
1: I totally am, I totally am. So,
0: I think this means that you actually are a Marvel Comics character because you just want a normal life. That's
1: right, that's all I want.
0: And I think we're going to leave it there, except (laughs) that I have my last question, Okay. which is, um, Ari, how are you feeling right now?
1: Well, um, I had a little cold. I've been a little off lately. Um, I, I will say, though, I, I feel like just talking about Magneto has, has really cheered me up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's sort of like it usually is. I'm okay. I'm on the, like, not as great side of okay, but I'm okay.
0: You know, you're putting on a little bit of a front. We rescheduled the recording of this podcast because you were too sick to do it yesterday. Oh,
1: I forgot that. Yeah, we did reschedule the podcast because I wasn't feeling well yesterday. I could have done it, but I would have. Um, it would not have been as good. I mean, let's face it, this was amazing.
0: Okay, if you do say so yourself. I do. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. And thank you. thank you to the audience for listening. If you want to listen to any of our KidneyCast episodes, we are on both iTunes and Stitcher. Um, all the episodes and show notes are available on my website, laramorris.com, dot scom And if you want to talk to us, send us questions or comments. We are at kidneycast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at KidneyCast, and Facebook.com slash KidneyCast. So get in touch with us on social media, get in touch with us by email, so that I don't have to ask Ari X-Men questions anymore. (laughs) And since Ari is now leaning away from his microphone as he (laughs) giggles, I'm going to call it right there. Thank you for listening to KidneyCast.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I got the giggles. I was not expecting that to be your question.